Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, we ask for your holy presence today with us. You have brought us all here for a reason, and that reason is to commune with you, to be open to you, to let our ears be open, to allow our souls to be open to you, that you may touch us, that you may commune with us. My Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, unplug our ears and clear our hearts of all things that need to be cleared off, that we may hear your word to us today. Speak through me, speak to me, Speak to all of us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you today to uh, open your Bibles, please, those of you that brought your Bibles. Open your Bibles to the letter of the Apostle James. The second reading that was read this morning in our service, the letter of the Apostle James. And if you don't have your Bible with you, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Or you may certainly use the uh, insert that is in your bulletin. And don't forget that in your bulletin, also in the last page, uh, there is a blank page uh, for you to uh, take notes as well. The Lord may be saying something to you that you want to remember later. It may be even something beyond what I have said. If he kind of speaks to your mind or to your heart, just write it down. If it is from the Lord, it will be beneficial to you. So uh, please, let's begin then looking at James. And we're going to be in James, I believe, for a few weeks, maybe all through the month of, uh, of September and maybe even into, into October. I don't know how many of you have read the letter of James. But uh, we're going to be looking at some things related to it. But first of all, uh, let me uh, share with you a little bit about who this James is. The James who wrote uh, this letter is the James who was one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. This is the James who was one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And when I say a pillar, I'm talking about one of the key primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem after the crucifixion of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension, and even after the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church got empowered on Pentecost by the Holy Spirit, but it still needed to do its ministry in Jerusalem uh, before uh, people like Paul started taking the gospel outside to the Gentile world. The apostles of Jesus sort of remained pretty much in Jerusalem and sharing the gospel primarily with Jewish people, sharing that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. One of those key leaders in the church that was the pillar uh, or one of the pillars of the Jerusalem early 
first century church, the church that had been commissioned to carry on the work of the gospel, one of them is this fellow named James. Together with Peter and with John, the three of them seem to have been pillars uh, that held the church together and that sustained the ministry of the church and gave them leadership. Um, I want to share with you a couple of passages of scripture to share a little bit more about this James. But if we look, for example, at Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, Galatians in chapter 2, St. Paul is uh, kind of sharing in chapter 2 how he came to the faith and the steps that he took and how he became familiar with the Jerusalem church. And for example, in chapter 2 of Galatians, St. Paul writes that he came to, Galate, to uh, Jerusalem and he says, When James, Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised to the Jews. So Paul comes, he visits Jerusalem, everybody's very scared of Paul still, because they think that he's the persecutor of the church, and so he was, they weren't going to trust him right away, it took Barnabas to bring him to the church, and kind of serves as his introduction to the Jerusalem church, and what happens is that James, Peter, and John give him the hand of fellowship, they recognize the truth of the gospel in James, in, in Paul, and they say to Paul, you and Barnabas, go ahead and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Our calling is here in Jerusalem to spread the gospel among the Jews. So this is that James who was a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. The other thing I want to say to you about this James is that this James is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. In the flesh. He was not divine at all. He was not the Son of God in the same way that Jesus was. But James seems to have been the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me share with you a couple of passages. Again, going back to Galatians. The letter to the Galatians chapter 1. This is what Paul says. When he came to Jerusalem the first time, he says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Except James, the Lord's brother. This is from Paul as he writes to the Galatians. And then in Matthew, as well as in Mark, there's clear indications that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Both Matthew and Mark made this same statement. And it says, this is when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. This is what the Nazarenes, who know the family well, and are very familiar with the family of Jesus, this is what they say according to the gospel. It's not his mother called Mary, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? 
men get all these things. This is the James that writes this letter. To have been in the flesh the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another passage which I want you to notice. Which is when Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. St. Paul is describing the process of the resurrection of Jesus because the Corinthians had asked him about the resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul writes back to the Corinthians. That he was buried, Jesus, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Peter, by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, have died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. This is that James. The James that experienced the resurrection of Jesus. The James that seemed to have been the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one other passage which I didn't put up. But you know that letter that seldom any of you read? The letter from Jude? How many of you know there's a letter named by a guy named Jude? Okay. Jude begins his letter by saying, I, Jude, the brother of James. I, Jude, the brother of James. Meaning that Jude was the brother of James, and both of them were brothers in the flesh of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the James that writes this letter to you and to me. I think it makes him a pretty special fellow, don't you? I mean, to be talking to somebody that grew up with Jesus since he was a child, one that, that even rejected him at one time, because his family, if you remember, his, his family thought he was loony. They didn't even want to be with him at times. And now he appears to James, and James becomes the pillar, or one of the pillars of the church. He's fully in at this time. Fully in. The other thing I want you to know about this James is that he was known as James the Just, or sometimes James the Pious, primarily to differentiate him for, from James, the brother of John. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman that Jesus called at the very beginning. This is not that James. This is James, the pillar of the church, the brother of our Lord. The other thing that I want you to understand about this letter is that because he is known as James the Just, it is a reference to the enormous devotion that we experience when we read the letter of James. An immense level of devotion, an in-depth grasp of the gospel, a man that kind of joins together the gospel in Judaism as you read through the letter. This is the letter. The letter is one of the most pastoral letters that you have 
in the New Testament. Extremely pastoral in its nature. James is so intent that the believers practice what the gospel is about. He's not writing a letter to correct churches like Paul does or, or some of the other apostles. James just wants to make sure that you and I, as believers of our Lord Jesus Christ, do not adhere to a faith in the head only, but a faith that is practiced in obedience to the teaching of God throughout the entire Bible, and primarily that the discipleship we are called to in Jesus becomes our practice. Practice is what James is all about. He will constantly call us to maturity. He will constantly call us to discipleship. He will constantly call us to growth. You read the letter of James and he's going to force you to have to practice what you claim you believe. He'll force you to have to practice what you claim you believe. He later made the statement later on that if you don't have, if you claim you have faith, but you don't have the practice of that faith, your faith is dead. If you claim to have faith in Jesus, if you claim to be committed to Jesus, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but you're not doing what Jesus asks us to do, your faith is fake. Your faith is really non-existent. Your faith is just head knowledge, doctrine in the head, without practice in your life. And James is intent in that our faith become practical. The letter, the entire letter, is about discipleship. How do we practice what we claim we believe? And I believe with all my heart that this letter speaks to all of us. Because there are many times in our lives where we at times don't behave the way the gospel and Jesus asks us to behave. We don't do the kind of things that Jesus asks us to do. We make excuses. We listen to other voices, including our own inner voices that say, it's my life, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And we become disobedient to the voice of the one God and the gospel of our one Lord and the inspiration of our one Holy Spirit. And we all go through this. And James forces us to confront our faith and our actions, our works, our practice of the faith, and what Jesus taught us to do. And that's what this letter is about. I want to give you three images that I want you to kind of imagine in your mind because they become important. Just three images. A big ear, this big, a big ear, a very small mouth, and very big hands. Very big hands, okay? A big ear, very small mouth, and very big hands. That's the image I want to give you as we look at this passage. And I want to begin by looking at something that I believe is, is, is special for us to, uh, to look at. Verse 17, this portion of the letter, J 
James begins with these words. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Some translations have it as good endowment. Okay, but the, the word is gift. It's, it's the Greek word dorea, which is a, a gift that God has given us, not a charismatic gift, but a dorea type of gift. It's, it's just like you receiving a gift. Okay, every good gift and every perfect gift. Now, have you received gifts from the Lord? I really want you to focus on that. Because we have all received gifts from above. And some of these gifts are very, very visible gifts. So when I started thinking about the visible gifts we have received, I started by looking at creation. Creation is a gift of God. When I study the creation, when I study the first chapter of Genesis, and I look at the way that God created all things, one of the things I've come to understand that the last creation, the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of man and woman, that was the goal. Your creation, your existence, was the goal of God. But for Him to be able to give you life, He had to create the conditions in which you could live in the flesh. So He created the entire creation. He called the lights to be, the sun, the moon, the stars. He separated the waters from the land. He created the, the animals. He created the, the vegetation. He created everything that created an atmosphere into which the new humans would be able to live. And the crown, the crown work of his creation was mankind. And then he put him in the garden that he had created. And he entered into a special relationship with that humanity, with that creation. All of creation is a gift of God. All of this creation that we take for granted, the trees, the food we eat, the air we breathe, the sun we enjoy, the rain when it comes, all of creation is a gift from God, a visible gift from God. Your life is a gift. Do you realize that if you did not exist, it wouldn't matter? Because there's plenty of other people. If you were never born, it would not matter. It wouldn't change one iota in all of creation. But God so loved you that in His will and in His time and in His way, He gave you life. And he made for you to be born. The life that you live is a gift from God. Your children are a gift from God. Your family is a gift from God. 
This church for us to worship is a gift from God. Everything that we enjoy, Jesus, Jesus is a gift from God, a visible gift from God. The Father gives His Son. He comes from above. He comes to the earth. And He is part of the gift of God by which He loves you. And He gave His life in love for you. And all of that is a visible gift of God. Do you realize that you've been gifted by God? That your very breath is a gift? That your very hope is a gift? That your very future is a gift. There are so many visible gifts in our lives. That we cannot look anywhere. Without recognizing that God is good. And he is perfect. And because he's good and he's perfect. He gives good and perfect gifts. But we don't only have visible gifts. We have invisible gifts that we're all looking forward to. The whole promise of heaven, the idea that we will be one day with the Father is a gift from God, not visible to us today, but yet very real. Salvation, the reconciliation between God and us is a gift from God, a gift of grace because none of us deserve it by our own actions. Our salvation, our reconciliation, the Holy Spirit that lives in us is a gift from God. We are gifted people because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of creation. The father of the sun, the father of the moon, the father of the stars, the father of everything in the heavens. And he is without variation or shadow of turning. He doesn't change. He doesn't love you today and not love you tomorrow. He doesn't change. He is constant in your life. Constant in your life. All good gifts and all perfect gifts come from God. And I think one of the most amazing gifts you and I have received is our new life in Christ. That He can call us sons and daughters. That He can give you the right to be the Son of God. That He can say, I have today chosen you. You are my elect. That new man that new woman, that thing that God is producing in you and in me that is changing us. Because if we allow God to change us, He will change us. We will be changed. We have been changed. We are continuing to be changed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a gift. That is a gift that He would take clay and turn a sinner into a saint that he would look at us and say I love you and I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to transform you and I'm going to transform you and you're going to fall in love with me and your life will change and you will be the first fruit of many in my religion that is a tremendous gift that you and I have received we are indeed 
very, very fortunate, very blessed to consider that God so has loved us that he's still involved with his creation. That he's still involved with me, with you. That he's not done yet with me. That he's still doing something in me. That he's still changing me. And I want to say to you that one of the things and one of the ways by which God changes us is His Word. God has implanted and is implanting His Word in you and in me. We are changed by the Word of God coming into us. By us hearing it preach, by us reading it when we read the Bible, by us listening to it in song or in prayer, the Word of God is the way God changes us. The implanted Word of God. As I was preparing the sermon, I was remembering, in fact, I was discussing with my wife this week, we were talking about our kind of our walk with the Lord. And we were remembering when, when Molly and I first got married. And I, I think uh, Marita was just a baby. Probably we carried her in a, in a carrier of some sort at that time. And she and I decided to join a Bible study together. And, and our priest was doing a Bible study and we started going uh, to the Bible study with our, our little baby who slept, thank God, through most of the study. <laughs> but I, I want to say to you that that was the beginning of the transformation of my life. When I allowed the Word of God, you see, I grew up in church since I was maybe about eight or nine I joined the church, me and my sister, or my sister and I, uh, we joined the church. My parents were not believers. I mean, they were Catholic, but they were Catholic, completely nominal Catholics, because they never went to church and they never took us to church. When we started, my sister and I were going to the Episcopal church. We were kids, we were there to play. That's what we were there for. I was there to play baseball with the other boys and the priest would take us to play baseball and we had all kinds of little things that the children did in their children's school and my sister and I loved that. And so I grew up in church, in the Episcopal church, but it was when I allowed the Word of God to start speaking to me that I went from a child to an adult, not in age, but in the beginning of maturing in my life. And still at that time, I had no idea that I would be a priest. That came much later. Later, But what I can tell you is that when I got into the Word, and I started hearing the teacher teach, and when I started reading the Word, it was quickened in me, and there was spiritual life that began to flourish in me, and I began to fall in love with my God, and I began to be in love with the Word, and I wanted to read it all the time, and I wanted to serve in my church all the time, and eventually one day He just pulled me out of my career and made me a priest. But it all started with the Word of God that gave me life 
It transformed me. It began to change me. It began to give me maturity and sense of God and presence of God and the welcome of the Holy Spirit. It all came through the Word, through reading the Word. The implanted Word of God gives life and it transforms us and it's a life-giving gift. A life-giving gift. So, so we hear James say to us that he wants us to be quick to hear. Quick to hear. In fact, this is how he says it. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 22 it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Big ear, remember? Big ear. Be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. Do you know that by your will, you can shut off the word of God? Do you know that by your will you can la 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 and not listen to what God has to say? Do you know that you can will to not hear the word of God? But you can also will to open your ears and your heart so that the word of God actually penetrates into you. Big ear. We are called to have big ears when it comes to the word of God. So that we can hear everything. How many people there are, even among Christians, who are just choosing what they hear and choosing what they obey and choosing what they accept and the rest they may reject it. That is not Christianity. Big ears to receive everything that the Word of God says. You know there are times that you come and you hear the sermon and you get all excited and you say, that was a great message, Father. And then you go out and you totally forgot everything you heard. You know that there are people that do that? Have you ever done that? That you hear the message, you hear the word, and the moment you leave, you go back to the old man. You go back to the old unbelieving world. And you go back to being everything you were. And what you heard and excited you kind of goes into some filing system in your head. And that's not what James is saying. He says, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. How many of us listen with one ear and out the other? Because we didn't like, it challenged us. So we allow it to just come in, I heard, but it goes out the other ear because we're not willing to practice, we're not willing to obey. James is saying the contrary, that if you have faith, you will practice your faith. You will live by your faith. You will do what the Lord calls you to do at all costs in your life. Big ear, get it all. Hear it all. Let nothing escape from your hearing. Big ear, small mouth. Small mouth. Because from the mouth comes all the junk 
that we store in our hearts. Small mouth. I'd rather we be known by speaking little, but when we speak, we mean what we say, we know what we say, and it has a bigger impact. Because anger, anger comes from a big mouth, an unchecked mouth, an uncorrected mouth, an unsanctified heart. We open our big mouth and what comes out of our mouth does not bring glory to God. I'd rather we learn to shut our mouth, speak as little as you can, and when you do it, you do it to the glory of God and the edification of the, of the believers and the edification of others. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Anger never works out to the glory of God. Anger causes people to reject the gospel. Anger causes people to reject you. Anger causes people to reject the possible salvation that they can receive. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he says, but I want you to be doers of the word not hearers only, which is an issue of obedience. Obedience is something that you will, you desire, you choose to obey, you choose to take your faith from a mental exercise to a heart that is active in obedience to the Lord. Obedience is what the gospel is about. Not because we are of works, but because a true faith in what Jesus teaches us calls us to do what he teaches. We need to practice what we believe. We need to practice what we believe. Big ears. You know what happens with the small mouth? We stop criticizing each other. We start stop finding fault. And we start figuring out how do I bless and catch and watch everything that is going to come out of your mouth. Small mouth, big ear. You know what? Without a big ear, you'll never be a big doer. Without a big ear, you'll never be a big doer for the Lord. You'll never be a disciple that brings glory to God because you're not hearing. And if you're not hearing, how can you act? How will God impact your life? How will God instruct your life? How will God change your life? And if it's not changed, then the practice will not be there or it'll be very minimal. Big ear will lead to wonderful work for the Lord. How will you disciple another when you yourself are not discipled? How you will tell others the gospel and the good news of salvation when you haven't even read it or know how to express it? Big ear will lead to great action and great practice of the faith and the world will be blessed 
by the work of the church, by the work of your hands. And then I just want to finish by pointing out the last couple of verses of this chapter. Verse 26 says, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. This one's religion is a failure. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted, unstained by an unbelieving world. True religion, true faith is to love your neighbor is to look at, at those that are suffering, at the widow, at the orphan, at the needy. And you know, today we can say, well, Father Jose, we don't have that many widows, and when we have widows, there is enough help, maybe from Social Security, and maybe enough help from a pension that was left, and, and widows are not as bad today as in the first century. Let me tell you, there's a lot of widows today that are just single divorced women and single divorced men that are trying to raise their children, and it's hard. And they need believers around them. And there's orphans that may have their father and their mother, but the father never visits. And there are orphans that are necessarily in orphanages. There are children in need of adults to come around them and love them and model for them the gospel and model for them Jesus. True religion is to care for all who are in need. And the needs are so varied and the needs are so different that we can always find somebody, marriages in trouble, parents having problems with children, all kinds of needs that we can step in and love and support and encourage and give them an ear and a shoulder to cry on. True religion is to care for needy for the needy, for people in need, but also to keep yourself unstained, undamaged by a world which is unbelieving, a world that wants to ignore the Word of God because they don't have a big ear and they don't care to hear. They just want to do what they want to do when they want to do it how they want to do it. To keep ourselves unstained from the worldliness out there. Whether it's through the internet, whether it's through the wrong friends, whether it is through whatever. To keep yourself unstained from the world. That is true religion. St. James wants you and I to look at our faith and make a solid decision that we will practice what we claim we believe. Because if we don't, it's like the person, he says in the chapter, it's like the person who looks at himself or herself in the mirror and combs his hair and, and pulls out his hair from here and then puts the cream and combs his hair and all of that. And the moment you leave the mirror, you forget what you look like. 
He says, I want the Christian to look at the perfect law of God and to know who he is, who she is, as they live in this world. People of faith practice their faith. If practice is not there, I would have to question whether your faith is real, whether it has impacted you, whether you have understood it, whether you have committed to be faithful to God's holy word. The imparted, implanted word of God will transform you and me. Listen, and it may not be easy, and sometimes we don't want to grow up. Sometimes we don't want to grow up and be obedient. But I guarantee you that obedience will lead to fruitfulness. The kind of fruitfulness that brings glory to the Lord. And we need not only to believe in our head, but to believe in our hearts and practice it with big hands, abundantly, to practice what we believe. I just want you to remember the big hand, the big ears, and the small mouth. Talk less and do more. Talk less about how good a Christian you are and do more to show your Christianity. Let the world see more than hear. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and be a doer of what you hear. Practice your faith. Live it. Live it day in and live it day out. And you'll be the recipient of the fruit of the presence of God. But your family will receive the fruit of what flows from you. And the world will receive the fruitfulness of the believers. That is the message of James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he must have heard it from Jesus himself. I think James, James came to the full understanding that, that he needed to be who Jesus called all of us to be. And once he came to know that he was the Son of God and the Messiah, his faith just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And he wants you and I to go deep in our faith as well. But to make it a practical faith and not just a mental faith. Amen? Amen. Stand with me.